0: Hello and welcome to the intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. During the pandemic, few cities were locked down longer and harder than Shanghai. But with China having suddenly abandoned its zero COVID strategy, the city is roaring back to life. And it's kind of weird. And you might think a stove is a reasonably uncontroversial appliance used to cook food, but you'd be wrong. We'll explain how gas stoves became the latest battleground in America's endless culture wars. But first, Tel Aviv has been rocked by protests. A big one last Saturday drew over 100,000 people, and it was followed by a series of smaller ones throughout the week. The protesters object to plans by Israel's new right-wing coalition government to curb the powers of the country's robustly independent Supreme Court. The former prime minister and now opposition leader Yair Lapid was among the crowds. People who love the country have come here to defend its democracy and to defend its courts, he said. He also vowed, we will not give up until we win. That may take some doing. Benjamin Netanyahu, who toppled Mr. Lapid's coalition in parliamentary elections late last year, is leading the charge to hobble Israel's Supreme Court and appears to have consolidated the right's hold on the country. With only a week in power, the government already launched
1: a very wide-ranging, what they call a legal reform, which basically is going to drastically weaken the Supreme Court. Anshul Pfeffer writes about Israel for The Economist both in the way the Supreme Court can hold the government to account and in the appointments, which will now be very much under the government majority.
0: How will it do that and how will this change affect the court? So this round
1: of reform has four main components. The first is an override clause, which basically means that the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, will be able to pass legislation even if the Supreme Court has ruled that the legislation is unconstitutional. They are going to abolish uh, the what's called the reasonableness standard, which is one of the main arguments used in petitions and rulings against government decisions. They want to change the makeup of the Judicial Appointment Commission, whereby there'll be a majority in the commission for government politicians. They can decide who are the next judges to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And the fourth element, which is not directly related to the Supreme Court, but it's very much a part of how the government works, is changing or replacing the legal counsels of the government ministries, who are currently professional civil servants accountable to the professional attorney general, and making them political appointees instead, which basically means that there won't be much legal oversight over any of the specific ministries' workings
0: or decisions. And has there been vigorous legal oversight in the past? I mean, how important have the Supreme Court's powers been? So the thing to remember is that Israel
1: doesn't have a constitution. It's a unicameral, proportional representation elected parliament, which therefore has a lot of powers. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no term limits. The way the parliament is made and the way the coalitions are built gives a lot of power to small, special interests and often quite radical parties. So the Supreme Court has been, since Israel's independence, the only effective institution holding the government to account. And in that role, the Supreme Court has, in many cases, ruled that government decisions or even Knesset legislation is unconstitutional. And that power is something that is grating to many politicians. And certainly on the right wing, the claim is that this is an undemocratic situation whereby an unelected institution can as they claim, subvert the will of the people.
0: Will the government face a constitutional challenge in getting these changes passed, do you think? Well, the
1: government's already facing constitutional challenge from the court. There was an attempt by the government to change the law and appoint a leader of one of the parties of the coalition who was recently convicted of tax fraud to appoint him to a senior ministerial post. And the Supreme Court ruled last Wednesday that that's unreasonable and therefore... Prime Minister Netanyahu had no choice but to fire that minister. And that was already what's being called a dress rehearsal for future such clashes, which are going to happen in the run up and if these laws are passed. So the President of the Supreme Court, Esther Hayut, made a very rare intervention
0: here.
1: And she explained that basically this is giving the Knesset majority an open check to do as they please. And this really goes to the depth of the argument here over whether the court should be there in a role of keeping the government check, despite the fact that the government is an elected government and the judges are not.
0: And so what are the concrete fears around this change? What do people worry the courts will do? There is a variety of concerns. First
1: of all, there's a concern of minorities and groups who are not in power or don't have any access to power. This ranges from Palestinians in the West Bank, minorities in Israel like the LGBT community that fear that the court, which in the past has intervened on their behalf, won't have the power to do so again. There are fears in the business community of the fact that If the legal environment no longer has the protections for private companies or individuals against government decisions, then this will also make Israel less of a hospitable environment for investment and for business in general. And in the wider sense, there's a feeling amongst many Israelis that this changes Israel's democratic character irrevocably.
0: And Anshul, what about Bibi Netanyahu's personal interest in
1: in this ruling? So one of the real questions that nobody has a certain answer for is, why is Netanyahu suddenly doing this? This is a man who's been in power for a total of 15 years until now, and has never tampered with the very delicate balance between the powers in Israel. Why is his government suddenly gung-ho on these changes, and they want to push them through in a matter of a few months by the end of the current Knesset session? And there are two possible answers. One is that Netanyahu has no choice He is in a coalition with very far-right and ultra-religious parties who are ideologically opposed to the Supreme Court. And since he needs them for his majority and there are no other parties in his coalition balancing out those radical voices, then he has no choice but to go ahead and perhaps at some point maybe he'll try and rein it in, in in any way. And the other possibility is that Netanyahu himself, after his year and a half in opposition, and more importantly, being on trial as he is now for bribery and fraud, has personally turned against the courts and feels that the only way that he can get himself out of the dock is by drastically weakening them. Mr Netanyahu, of course, denies all the charges against him.
0: So Anshul, does he have an interest in these proposed reforms beyond strictly the political? In the background, there's another personal
1: issue for Netanyahu, and that is whether he at some point will be ruled unfit to serve as prime minister. Now, according to the previous ruling two years ago by the Supreme Court, he can still remain prime minister while being on trial. But now that his government is tampering with the legal system, there are conversations going on both in the Justice Ministry and in other places, that he could be ruled unfit to serve as prime minister as a result of that.
0: Over the weekend, we saw huge protests in Tel Aviv over these changes. Do you think we'll see more protests against the ruling this coming weekend? The protests are going to continue. These were just
1: rehearsals for what will probably be larger and wider and perhaps also more violent protests. But we're not yet there. The government is only started to discuss these plans in the Knesset Law Committee. It's at the preliminary stage. Some people think that this is sort of an opening gambit from the government and that they'll compromise at some point. One of the biggest fears of the opposition is that Further down the road, once the obstacle of the Supreme Court is removed and they can pass laws without fear of the Supreme Court ruling them unconstitutional, is that a new law may be passed which will make it much more difficult for the Arab-Israeli parties to run in a future election, which would basically ensure that the right wing will be in perpetual power. So we're in for what may be quite a long and bitter struggle for the future of Israeli democracy right now.
0: All right, Anshul, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, John.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com code LISTEN.
0: This week, the Lunar New Year has been celebrated in relative normality in China. Up and down the country, crowds have gathered to watch fireworks light up the sky. And for the first time in years, millions of Chinese have returned to familial homes for the holidays. Just months ago, scenes like this would have been unthinkable. China's draconian zero-COVID rules made mass gatherings illegal. And stringent testing curtailed many of the freedoms of everyday life. But since the Communist Party's abrupt policy reversal, all of that has changed. As the year of the rabbit begins, life is getting back to normal. Meanwhile, the coronavirus runs rampant through the country.
3: So I was here early last year at a really difficult time when the city was locked down. And then I left in September. I needed to get out of China and have a break from the zero COVID policy. Don Wineland is our China business and finance editor. I came back a few weeks ago, so at the beginning of January. And as soon as I got back, my wife got COVID. She had never had it before. And it's kind of funny to think that just a couple weeks ago, a positive COVID case would have resulted in being hauled off to, to quarantine. But, you know, this time, of course, now that zero COVID is over, no one came knocking on the door. We were perfectly fine.
0: Don, you've appeared on the show before to talk about life in Shanghai. You've written any number of lovely pieces about it. Remind us what it was like in the city just a few months ago.
3: So if you go back to March and April of last year, that was a really dark time for Shanghai. The city was locked down for two months. It was very difficult to go outside. Getting things like basic food and water was really difficult. Many people are thought to have died because they couldn't get access to regular medical care. So that was the beginning of the year. And then following that, Shanghai went into this period of time where it was opening up and locking down again and again. It was really frustrating. Shops would open up and then authorities would come by and say, nope, close down. And if you were caught in a place that had had a positive COVID case, you stood the chance of having authorities come by, knock on your door and haul you off to a quarantine camp.
0: And what's it been like
3: since you've been back this winter? Well, I'd say that the city feels very normal right now, which is strange. Yeah, the city is really coming back to life. And the most notable thing is that just a couple weeks ago, people were terrified of getting COVID because they could end up in a quarantine facility. Now that all of those rules have been scrapped, people are very excited to get back out to buy things, to just go sit in a coffee shop and drink coffee without a mask on. <laughs> so yeah, it feels quite good here right now. The Chinese New Year has also just kicked off. It's a festival that lasts several days.
2: <laughs>
0: and
3: this is a time when people go home to their hometowns. So Shanghai has been relatively quiet during this period of time, but shops are still quite full and cafes are bustling. It's clear that people are ready to get back out and start spending money.
0: And are there reminders of what the city was like for a few years? I remember you talking about the constant COVID tests at these little pop-up booths.
3: Yes. It's hard to walk around the city without seeing many of the parts of the infrastructure that put together Zero COVID. The most notable thing is these testing booths that are all over the city. We think there are thousands of them that are still on the streets. So these booths a couple months ago were places where people would go get tested for COVID. So you could find sometimes hundreds of people lining up to get COVID tests at these booths. And I don't know what the plan is for those. There's also QR codes all over the place. So outside of many doorways, you'll see a COVID QR code. And not too long ago, to enter into really any building, even a taxi, you had to scan these codes with your phone. And this was a way of tracking where people were going. And it was also a way of making sure that you were taking these daily tests. To me, it feels strange to walk up to my hotel and just walk in without presenting a COVID code or scanning something. The level of freedom right now is a little bit jarring after such a long period of time of doing all these things.
0: And how are you and other
3: Shanghainese
0: adapting to this new life of freedom?
3: In many ways, it feels like things have just picked up where they left off. But I think that's A somewhat simplistic explanation of what's going on here. If you strike up a conversation with just about anybody here in Shanghai right now, they'll have a story to tell about what it was like during the lockdown. When I first got back, I was riding in a cab and I began talking with the cab driver and he told me his story about what the lockdown was like. He had been hauled off to a quarantine camp at one point because someone in his area had COVID. And then when he came back, he wasn't allowed into his residential district anymore. This was a very common thing. The people that controlled the residential areas were afraid that somebody who's had COVID or who has been in one of these camps would bring it back and cause more problems. So yeah, he was locked out of his home. And he found a truck that was empty And ended up sleeping there with several other people for a couple weeks, relying on some people in a nearby construction site to cook them food. The way that this man told the story, he really kind of chuckled about it. But I have to imagine that that's tough to go through. You know, lots of people had a really difficult time during the lockdown and during zero COVID. So a lot of people lost their jobs. If you were an employer, you may have had to fire a lot of people. You may have had to close down for quite a while or maybe even permanently. So people are still trying to get back to where they were, say, a year or two years ago before all of this happened. And I think that's going to be difficult and it's going to take some time.
0: What you've described, Don, is the taxi driver caught in a web, not just of official strictures, but of very deep popular fears about COVID itself. Now that the official strictures have loosened, what about those fears? Are people as anxious
3: about catching COVID as they were before? People really don't seem afraid to catch COVID right now at all. In fact, most people that I know has already had it. There was a wave of COVID that swept through right at the end of December, and just about everybody that I know had it then. And these are mainly young people. Some people had uncomfortable cases, but for the most part, it was no big deal. So there's not a lot of anxiety around that. That said, it's very hard to tell how many people are actually dying. The government is not producing reliable figures. I have talked with people that have lost family members, and that sounds incredibly difficult. And, you know, I think there's frustration that these deaths aren't really being accounted for. So for the most part, if you were elderly and you died of COVID here, your case would not be registered as an actual COVID case. It would probably be something else.
0: Don, what do you think the long-term effects of having lived through this will be for
3: Shanghainese? So I think for a lot of people, there will be a scarring effect, which basically means they lost some income or their net assets declined during this period of time. And it'll take some time to catch up. Psychologically or socially, most people that I've talked to so far are quite happy that they're through it. But I'm sure there's lots of sadness that has built up throughout the past year, and that will need to be expressed somehow. Politically speaking, the government faced some big challenges just a few weeks ago. There were big protests at the end of November in many major cities against the continuation of zero COVID. Whether or not we see any continuation of that is the big question. I personally think that we will not. The government has cracked down on those protesters quite severely since then. And in many respects, they've went along with what people were asking for during the protest. And just chatting with people here in Shanghai, I don't sense a lot of frustration towards the government right now, but that, of course, could change. All right, Don, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Alice, we're just
2: pulling into Changsha Station. It's been nine and a half hours. Uh, since we left Guangzhou. And uh, it's been a real uh, privilege to spend time with a whole bunch of people traveling, in some
3: cases, you know, 40 hours to get home.
0: On this week's episode of Drum Tower, our podcast about China, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief, is on a journey. As China's Lunar New Year Spring Festival starts... Migrant workers are returning home to see their loved ones. It's the world's largest human migration involving a predicted 2 billion journeys. Join David as he takes the slow train across China, speaking to people who, because of COVID, haven't been able to get home since the start of the pandemic three years ago. Drum Tower is available wherever you get your podcasts. Today,
1: where food is finest, it's Cooked With Gas.
0: For almost a century, America's natural gas industry has been perfecting its PR.
2: Cooking with gas. Gas. Cooking with gas. Gas. We all cook better when we're cooking with Gas. gas.
0: The Cooking With Gas advertising slogan is baked into the American psyche. Millions of Americans turned on their gas burners without a second thought until earlier this month, when it became another hot-button political issue.
2: So the Consumer Product Safety Commission is a federal agency that looks at regulations and recalls of any product that could pose a hazard.
0: Holly Berman is The Economist's social media editor.
2: On January 9th, one of their commissioners told Bloomberg that the organization was considering a ban on gas ops, describing them as a hidden hazard. That sparked outrage among many conservatives. Lots of them were blaming President Joe Biden.
0: What did that outrage look like?
2: So you had tweets from Republicans, including one from Ronnie Jackson, a Republican congressman from Texas that said, if the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. You also had Andrew Gruhl, who's a television chef, taping himself to a stove in protest. In response to the Biden administration's suggested proposal to ban all natural gas stoves, stoves in households, commercial kitchens, I have taped myself to the stove and I will stay taped to this stove until the idea is completely eliminated from everybody's minds. I'll be here. And even some Democrats were riled. Senator Jay Manchin from West Virginia called a ban a recipe for disaster.
0: Why is this such a hot button issue?
2: Around 38% of American households have gas stoves, although that varies among states. Proponents say they're cheaper and more efficient than electric alternatives. And even that food cooked on them tastes better. You've also got a website called cookingwithgas.org, which is run by the American Gas Association, which is a trade group publishing recipes exclusively with gas. And in sponsored social media posts, influencers rave about their gas stoves. So there's a large pro-gas stove movement already out there.
0: But are these appliances actually dangerous? What is the hidden hazard worrying the regulator?
2: Gas stoves do emit nitrogen dioxide, particulate matter, and other pollutants. They also carry environmental and health risks, including asthma. The dangers can be mitigated with good ventilation, but indoor pollution is not heavily regulated in the US. Burning gas also releases greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane. So on the whole, they're not great for the environment.
0: But why is President Biden taking so much flack over this? Has his administration actually said or done anything about about gas stoves?
2: Yeah, so we have the Inflation Reduction Act, and don't let the name fool you. It was a huge climate bill for Biden. It passed last summer. It offers incentives for consumers to switch to electric stoves, like those to encourage electric cars. For stoves, there are rebates of up to $840 available. And since 60% of American electricity is generated by burning gas and coal, though, the alternative is not always greener. And that's about all Biden's administration has done, legislation-wise.
0: So could they actually be banned?
2: On a small scale, we are seeing an effort to reduce the use of fossil fuels. Some Democratic city councils have passed legislation to limit the use of gas. So in 2019, Berkeley in California became the first American city to prohibit the fuel for heating and cooking in new buildings. In response, California's Restaurant Association tried to sue, but a judge dismissed the lawsuit. This year, New York City will ban gas in some new buildings. A similar plan was proposed for New York State, but it failed to pass last year, although... New York's Democratic governor, might try again. In response to a lot of this, since 2021, more than 20 states, many of which are governed by Republicans and some of which are also producers of gas, have introduced laws to block local bans.
0: And Holly, you've just mentioned a bunch of state and local level issues. What about a a, a federal ban? Is there anything like that on the horizon?
2: So the federal threat to Americans' cooking habits is not imminent. Days after this all kicked off, a White House spokesperson said that the Biden administration had no plans for a ban. The president does not support uh, banning gas stoves and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is independent, uh, is not banning gas stoves. So just want to be very clear on that on that. And when it comes to any national ban, the CPSC did say, if it ever happens, it will be on new cookers, not on ones already in people's kitchens. That should allow some time for the most heated defenders of gas stoves to simmer down.
0: All right, Holly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John.